This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin this hour with the staggering death toll from the novel coronavirus. It's now 3,662 people who have lost lives in the U.S. That's up from around 600 this time last week, from 600 to more than 3,600 in one week. It's just 4 p.m. East Coast time, but we've already seen 658 deaths just today, more than any other day so far. Globally, the death toll is nearly 42,000. More than 800,000 have been confirmed infected worldwide. And of course, the actual number is much higher. And while experts hope this constant exponential growth of death and illness will ultimately slow, the peak in the U.S. still is likely weeks, if not months away. And the nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, is now warning that there could be a resurgence of the coronavirus later this year, a second coronavirus wave in the fall. Right now, Dr. Fauci says the task force is discussing what could be a major change for the public, potentially advising all Americans to wear masks when they leave their homes. The CDC has not said that yet, but officials are discussing the possibility of this recommendation. It's something President Trump seemed to endorse last night. We're not going to be wearing masks forever, but it could be for a short period of time. After we get back into gear, people could I could see something like that happening for a period of time. But I would hope it would be a very limited period of time. By now, you are no doubt aware of the lag in the U.S. in terms of testing kits produced and disseminated and lab results being returned. You may be aware of the shortage of personal protective equipment or PPEs for our healthcare workers and the fears about what an insufficient number of ventilators will mean when there is a surge of patients unable to breathe on their own here in the U.S. Masks are already in short supply for healthcare workers, so masks for the public could be the next item the United States desperately needs more of. The question, will the Trump administration be prepared for that challenge? In the meantime, as CNN's Nick Watt reports, cities and states are doing whatever they can right now to provide some semblance of relief to the millions of suffering Americans who have lost jobs and are out of basic necessities such as food. In Pittsburgh, long lines at a food bank. In Atlanta, city workers on the front line now getting hazard pay. In New York, today the first patients arrive at that field hospital in Central Park. The governor calling on hospital systems and government to step up the game. Time to say to that federal government and to FEMA and HHS, uh, you have to learn how to do your job and you have to learn how to do it quickly because time is not our friend. Here at the epicenter, the rate of new cases still climbing, but now slowing. What we're starting to see right now is just the inklings. And And I don't want to put too much stock on it because you don't want to get overconfident. More than 10,000 coronavirus cases hospitalized right now across New York State. Among them, Mia Mungin's 30-year-old sister. She's heavily sedated. They paralyzed her, so we are unable to speak to her. Mia Mungin is a healthcare worker, thinks she had coronavirus, couldn't get a test. And I can only speculate that I possibly, you know, infected her. Today, the White House task force is discussing whether we should all now be wearing masks if we go out. The thing that has inhibited that a bit is to make sure that we don't take away the supply of masks 
from the healthcare workers who need them. 78% of Americans are now under some sort of stay-at-home order. Maryland just pulled that trigger. One of the last uh, uh, tools in our arsenal. Californians have been told to stay home more than 10 days now. I think, quite honestly, the shelter-in-place and the social distancing is working because that surge has yet to come. But even with social distancing, one model now suggests that at the peak, mid-April, more than 2,200 Americans will die in a single day. The main battle is at the apex. We're still going up the mountain. Hotspots now growing in Detroit, New Jersey, New Orleans. We're tracking at about 5% on the, on the mortality rate, and it's just, uh, that's high. And the economic price we're paying, hoping to save lives. Second quarter, about to start, the U.S. economy could shrink by 34% according to Goldman Sachs. A cafe in Wisconsin, takeout only, of course, now giving away food for free. If somebody can afford, that's great. If they can't, well, that's fine, too. They still got to eat. And we can't let up. Not yet. We can't let this monster come up. Uh, We've got to keep trying to keep pushing it down. And this is a, a critical time. Now, the first place in this country to implement a stay-at-home order was a block of seven counties up in the San Francisco Bay Area. That was about two weeks ago. We have just heard from them. They are extending that nearly another five weeks through May 3rd. And about a half hour ago, the governor of California was asked if he had any regrets telling the whole of California to stay home so early in this crisis. No regrets, he said. The only regret he would have is if we cut the parachute, he said, before we land. Jake. All right, Nick Watt in California, thank you so much. Joining me now, CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Uh, Sanjay, uh, the World Health Organization and the CDC are both recommending to wear masks only if you're sick or if you're caring for someone who's sick. But in other countries where they've done a decent job of flattening the curve, you, you, you see people wearing masks and you see masks mandated for a lot of the population. What do you think about this discussion going on behind closed doors? Should all Americans, when they leave their home, be wearing masks? I, I, I think we may be getting to that point, Jake, and it is a significant change. One thing I want to show you quickly, we've been sort of digging into this all day, uh, last several days, as you know, Jake. From the World Health Organization site itself, we found this. Uh, if we can put this up on the screen, it's basically a recommendation of what to do regarding masks in, the, in a severe situation with regard to a severe pandemic. You can read this. Uh, it says face masks worn by asymptomatic people are conditionally recommended in a severe uh, epidemic or pandemic. That's the first line. That comes from the World Health Organization itself. So there is some history, even among that organization, of recommending these masks universally uh, in in severe situations, uh, Jake. And, you know, one could argue, obviously, that that we are in that severe situation. Um, I spoke to Dr. Fauci uh, earlier today. I know you've spoken to him many times. I really wanted to see where his head was at on this. I know what he's been saying in terms of policy, but listen to this exchange. They're going to ask your opinion about this. Will you recommend it? You know, from what I've seen, Sanjay, I think that if we do not have the problem of taking away masks from the healthcare workers who need them, I would lean towards it because I think that it I mean, what what harm can it do if you have enough masks? 
Jake, one of the things that came up, and I, and I think you'll appreciate this point, is you know, as much as the discussion has been public health versus the economy recently, uh, as, as uh, Dr. Fauci and I continue to talk about this, the, the sort of trade-off here is public health versus the perception, the optics that America is sick because people are wearing masks in public. You know, culturally, as you mentioned, it's something that's done in many countries around the world. But might we be perceived as sick? That is one of the things that uh, it's, it's, you know, he's going to be discussing with the, with the task force. But he's, he's definitely leaning toward it. And I think he thinks the optics, we can get beyond that. So there's a lot of questions I have about this. First of all, Sanjay, um, we don't have enough masks for doctors, nurses and healthcare workers. I mean, this would take the Trump administration working with private industry a significant effort. Uh, and to be quite frank, we haven't really seen a lot of evidence uh, that that this has been able to happen. Yeah. I mean, we have some progress with testing sure. kits, but we're lagging significantly behind in testing kits, lagging behind in personal protective equipment for healthcare workers, lagging behind in ventilators. Now mm-hmm. we're adding a new thing when, when the Trump administration uh, and the states can't, can't handle everything else on their plate. Well, I th- you know, I think, I think Dr. Fauci definitely uh, makes a distinction here between the medical masks, the N95 and the surgical masks, versus cloth masks, uh, cotton masks, things that aren't typically used in hospitals. Uh, you know, he was very careful about this, and I think most people are, you know, you're right, we have a shortage, so this in no way should be robbing Peter to pay Paul here in terms of masks. This would be a different sort of mask. I think this is what's changed, Jake. I think the past was, look, I'll wear a mask outside to protect myself. That was the thinking. I think what is now uh, what is now guiding the thinking is that if this is spreading and asymptomatic people can spread it, then maybe the mask, even a cloth mask, can help somebody who's asymptomatic from spreading it. It's still there's still not a lot, mm-hmm. lot of evidence that it helps a healthy person not get it. These aren't you know medical grade masks, but if you can decrease the viral load coming from somebody who's asymptomatic or even minimally symptomatic from getting into the environment, maybe that could be helpful. Obviously, people should stay home, Jake. That's the first line evidence. Right. But if you need to go out, if there's some specific reason, you know, essential reason, then possibly the idea of wearing a, a cotton mask, not a medical grade mask, I think it's something that we're going to hear. It's going to be a big cultural shift, I think, but I think it's something we're going to hear over the next day or so. Sanjay, I got to ask you, the president said on a phone call with governors yesterday that there's nothing wrong with testing in this country, that it's not a problem. He hasn't heard any complaints about it for weeks. That's not true. I mean, there are huge problems with testing all over the country. We heard about it from Democratic and Republican governors and healthcare workers all over the country. Are the people leading the effort to ramp up testing and to disseminate the kits and to get the labs up to speed? They they're aware of the reality, right? They, they're not they're not living in President Trump's alternate reality. No, I, I I think they're absolutely aware of this. I mean, there's I you know we hear from colleagues all the time. I'm talking to people at various hospitals around the country on a daily basis, almost hourly basis, Jake. And there's still lots of people around the country who want to get tests and can't get it. Number one, number two, even healthcare workers in some of these places who who obviously need to need to know whether they are COVID positive or not oftentimes, or at least sometimes, can't get tests. This Abbott laboratory test, this 15-minute test that people have been hearing about, uh, is a big deal, uh, but it just got approved on Friday. They're going to start shipping out 50,000 tests a day, I believe, starting tomorrow, April 1st. I think that will make a difference. But, you know, at this point, I don't think we can say that we are doing fine on tests. And, Jake, I'd even go so far as to say this. Uh, This isn't something you can 
come back up to speed on. You know, we, we missed a window here. I think everybody yeah. acknowledges that. You can't catch up on this like you catch up on sleep or something. We, the early testing, what was key, it wasn't just testing, but doing it early enough. This will help, but you can't make up that time. You can only do the best you can now going forward with testing. And explain why it's, it's still so critical. I mean, we, outside the hotspots, New York, uh, Detroit mm. is going to be one, San Francisco, uh, et cetera. Why is it important for there to be widespread testing, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people tested? Well, one, one could almost make the argument at this point, right now at this point in time, Jake, it's almost more important outside the hotspots because in the hotspots, you, you kind of have to work under the assumption, as many healthcare workers and community members are, that the virus is there, it's spreading. Healthcare workers actually work with this idea that everybody that comes into the hospital, whether it's for an infectious disease issue or a heart issue or a broken bone, whatever it may be, they all are assumed to have the virus in those areas. Uh, you know, in other areas where, you, ha- where you, you know, the numbers aren't as big, there's still this hope with testing that you can identify who has it, isolate them, possibly contact trace, and prevent those places from turning into the same sorts of hotspots. I'm not optimistic, nor is Ambassador Burks about that. She said, as things look now, uh, you know, those places that have fewer cases still look like they're following the same curve that we saw with these hotspots, albeit in a delayed fashion. So, you know, I think it's important, and ultimately you are going to want to get broader surveillance. It's going to be important, you know, in the in the months to come if this this particular virus comes back. But uh, you know, uh, you know, we we did miss an opportunity again with regard to early testing. And Sanjay, I know um, this disease uh, has affected a lot of people. You know, a lot of people I know. Um, coronavirus has taken the life of somebody that you really admired and really, really cared for, uh, Dr. James Goodrich, a, a neurosurgeon who separated uh, conjoined yeah. twins, uh, Jaden and Anais McDonald. Um, he let you and CNN yeah. into document the incredible uh, journey. Uh, tell us about him. He, he, was, uh, he, he was a giant of neurosurgery, Jake. He was just one of these uh, incredible souls who was a uh, fantastic teacher, but uh, was also the, the world's most experienced surgeon, neurosurgeon, when it came to separating conjoined twins. I mean, that's quite something, you know, to have that kind of experience lost. I mean, it's a cruel disease, as we know. It doesn't discriminate against uh, who you are or what you do. I think it was, a, it was a shocker for me, Jake. I know maybe for you, as you've heard of people who've contracted the virus to, to you know, it still hasn't fully settled in that, that he's gone and that this virus is the reason why. But it, it's, it, it's, it's a huge loss. He was actually scheduled to operate this week still, Jake. That's how fast this, this, uh, this happened for him. So, um, again, I, you know, I, I hope other, I, you know, I kind of, I guess, in the back of my mind, Jake, thought maybe I'd get, you know, be in a position where I, where I, you know, sadly wouldn't know somebody directly who was affected by this. I guess we all wish that. But uh, uh, it, it's already happened for, for me and I know for so many others. Um, so it just, it, you know, it's tough, Jake. It's just a real loss, I think, for everybody, for humanity. Okay. Of course, and of course, our friend and, and colleague Chris Cuomo, who contracted uh, coronavirus as well. Although, yeah. as we as we understand it, he's he's healthy as of now. Sanjay, thanks so much. Check it's always great to, to talk to you. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Uh, you can hear more of okay, Sanjay's conversation it. with uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci on Sanjay's podcast tomorrow. Coronavirus fact versus fitch, fiction. Uh, Sanjay, always a wonderful addition to the show. Every day we talk to him. Coming up, a rare look inside one ICU battling coronavirus, the extraordinary steps the hospital's taking to care for patients while trying to keep hospital staff safe. Plus, the Trump administration poised to reissue new coronavirus guidelines today. What prompted the change? That's ahead. 
In the United States, Washington state now has the second highest number of deaths due to coronavirus behind only New York state. CNN is getting an inside look at one medical center in Washington state, which is completely revamping to care for the growing number of patients. CNN's Sarah Seidner now takes us inside Harborview Medical Center with the doctors and nurses on the front lines. It's changed how Harborview runs. Nurses and doctors at Seattle's Harborview Medical Center suit up. To go to battle with coronavirus, they have to go through an exhaustive dressing regimen, hoods and tubes and masks and gowns, just to enter a patient's room. We think the greatest risk actually for healthcare workers is when they remove things, that they contaminate themselves. They have a checklist and a spotter helping with every step. They also have to adapt to new realities and shortages. So these are what are called papper hoods. So these are the hoods that hook up to these uh, machines that uh, filter air. And that's the hose that hooks up to the back of the hood. They do get cleaned inside and out so they can be reused. Because the way they were built was for one-time use. But that's not the way, if we did that, we would already be out. Wow. They have completely revamped two intensive care units. So this whole unit was meant to be for people with brain injuries and uh, strokes and so forth. And so now we have to move all of them someplace else because we have to continue that care. So all the people with brain injuries were moved and this was turned into a COVID-19 ICU unit. Correct. All to try and help coronavirus patients live isolate them from others and keep the staff safe too. So I am not wearing the full personal protection equipment because in these rooms where the actual COVID-19 patients are, these are considered negative pressure rooms. That means that we are considered in a safe space, um, not wearing full personal protection. Patients are being cared for, uh, but we don't need to wear the full apparatus unless you are a doctor or nurse who has to go into the room to care for the patient. Inside the rooms, patients are hooked up to a shocking number of tubes using those precious ventilators, the only thing keeping them breathing. So for the ICU patients, they tend to stay, they get very sick and they stay sick very long. So needing to require the ventilator for weeks at a time. And that's really the big issue. Across just their four hospitals, 60 coronavirus patients were hospitalized last week. Already this week, it's at least 100. For each one, a delicate dance to keep staff healthy and patients alive. It is um, just coming in here and seeing the, the work that's being done and seeing the patients being cared for. It's stressful. It's... Um, I'm scared for, for their families um, as well. Um, and so as you walk through and you see the hard work being done and people doing everything they need to take care of patients, um, it's awe-inspiring, considering the fact that they too could be putting themselves in harm's way. Outside the hospital, a large tent has been erected to assess and test potential coronavirus patients. And this is happening before the anticipated surge here. I feel dread and I feel fear and I'm not working on the front lines. Mm. What are you feeling as you're dealing with all these COVID-19 patients? It's certainly a sense of anxiety because we, you know, right now, um, we're kind of wondering what it's going to be like when that peak comes and when people are, you know, flooding in. While the number of new infections in Washington seems to be slowing down, there's a growing sense they haven't seen the worst of it yet. 
what they do every day is heroic. Going and taking care of patients without protection is not acceptable. And they believe that the peak is supposed to happen here in the Washington area on April 19th. And that is why you are seeing a change here. This was actually the first hospital believed to have the very first death from COVID-19. That was more than a month ago, Jake. And everything has changed since then. Jake. Powerful reporting. Sarah Seidner, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Joining me now is Lieutenant General Todd Semonite. He's the commander of the Army Corps of Engineers, the government agency being used during emergencies to build medical facilities. Uh, General, thanks so much for joining us. I understand the Army Corps has about 10 contracts right now to help build and expand temporary hospitals. Can you explain to us how does that process work and what are you doing right now? Yeah, Jake, first of all, I just want to say that on behalf of all of us in the Department of Defense, I mean, our thoughts and prayers go out to all of those people that have been infected by this terrible virus. And we're just so proud to be part of this uh, heroic team that's trying to do whatever we can to be able to come up with a solution. So at the, uh, what really is happening here is that there are three problems. There's a potential shortage of sites, a potential shortage of supplies, and a potential shortage of staff. Uh, we're mainly going to focus on the sites or the hospitals. So what we've done is we were called in by uh, the president to go into New York and help Governor Cuomo to try to figure out how could we mitigate this shortage. Uh, what we were asked to do is to build hospitals coming out of the ground in a couple of weeks. You can't do that. So we came up with a very, very simple concept to be able to go into existing facilities. Uh, one was hotels and dorm rooms. The other concept was large open spaces like field houses or convention centers, and to be able to actually be able to build a hospital inside of an existing facility. The nice thing, Jake, about that is you already have electricity, you already have water, you already have fire, you have all your HVAC, so we're able to put inside of a facility a hospital. What we've done is we've been asked, as of this morning, to do over 500 assessments throughout several different uh, cities and states and throughout all of America. And you're right. Today, we're actually building nine of these out with a total right now of about 9,800 beds. Okay, so the Army Corps is setting up, uh, set up the Javits Center in New York, uh, and the Javits Center is, is now a hospital, and they're treating the non-coronavirus patients. Um, the facility you're setting up in, in the Chicago Convention Center, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, will treat COVID-19 coronavirus patients. Now, you previously worried that a building that big, the Chicago Convention Center, might not mean meet, uh, meets the COVID standard. What does that mean, the COVID standard, and how are you ensuring uh, that it will be safe to have that many coronavirus patients in that building? So first of all, the decision on how to be able to array your different type of facilities is a governor's decision and a mayor's decision. So we go in with basically four different designs, COVID, non-COVID, small hotel type arrangements or large room arrangements. And we provide those designs and let the state decide what is the best application. This is a state role, not the federal role. Our job is to help them understand what's in the realm of possible. Javits is a great example, large open space, everybody going in there is basically non-COVID, and you're exactly right. We were worried that in a large convention center, we might not be able to bring the pressure down enough, seal the doors enough, where we could be basically keep the contaminants inside. In the Chicago McCormick Place, and we're doing this right now in Detroit as well, the TCF Center, to be able to make both of those large arenas uh, a, basically a COVID center. What that means, though, 
is the people that are working inside there, they have to be protected in PPE. So they're walking among the patients who are basically out in open bays, but they're the protection is now provided to them individually. General, are you getting more requests for help from states and cities than you're able to provide? Right now, I'm not. Uh, the White House has called me about every other day saying, what else can we do to take care of you? Dr. Esper, Secretary of Defense, has asked me, what else do you possibly need? I've given the authority uh, by FEMA to be able to hire up whatever I've got capability. We have uh, 36,000 employees in the Corps. All of our teams are out right now with red shirts on, walking through whatever the mayor wants to be able to build out. And the main thing to see is this is not the Corps of Engineers. This is the entire federal team. This is FEMA. This is HHS. Great teamwork by the states and the cities. The Corps is a small part of it. But it's amazing to see down on the ground in the middle of a facility, everybody working for, a, for the same common goal. Uh, General Semini, thank you. Um, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for all, all that your, your, your fellow uh, Army Corps engineers do, are doing. And let us know if there's anything we can do to help what you're doing. Stay in touch with us, please. Jake, here's the biggest thing is this expectations. We don't have time to be able to do the perfect solution. We've got to determine what is mission essential. And I tell my guys, you don't have all the world to build us. You have three weeks. Find out when the curve of that city is and get it in on time. All right. I hear you, sir. Thank you so much. The first U.S. service member has died from coronavirus. The Defense Department announced that Army Captain Douglas Lynn Hickok passed away on Saturday. At least 716 U.S. service members have tested positive for coronavirus. I want to bring in CNN's Barbara Starr now. Uh, Barbara, those cases include an outbreak on a naval aircraft carrier, the USS Theodore Roosevelt, where at least 70 sailors uh, have tested positive. Tell us the extraordinary sound of alarm that the commander of that vessel has issued. Well, overnight, Jake, Washington woke up to a very disturbing message from the commanding officer of the aircraft carrier. It's currently in Guam. He's got about 70 sailors on board who are sick and a crew of 5,000. And what the commanding officer told the Navy here in Washington is that something has to be done. He wants to try and get as many of those crew members off the ship in Guam, get them into isolation for two weeks, get them tested and find out if anybody is sick and get them treated. What the commanding officer is saying, the aircraft carrier, as you well know, is a very tight space, disease, infection, virus, it all spreads very quickly. He is deeply concerned that this cannot be controlled. And he's pointing out this is not a war. He doesn't want to see anybody. It's not a war of combat, we should say. He doesn't want to see anybody on his ship die. He wants them taken care of. Jake? All right, Barbara, stay in touch with us on that story. Very important what's going on there in the USS Theodore Roosevelt. The White House is set to release the scary predictions of coronavirus in the U.S., the projections that helped convince President Trump to issue stronger guidelines. But believe it or not, some administration officials are not on board. Stay with us. Welcome back on a conference call with governors on Monday. President Trump made the astounding statement that he had not, quote, heard about testing in weeks, suggesting he did not know that the U.S. remains way behind in testing on a per capita basis. This combined with his wild suggestions that those dealings with the crisis in its epicenter, New York, are perhaps doing something unscrupulous with the personal protective equipment doctors and nurses need. There's no 
evidence of that, combined with his accusations about New York stockpiling ventilators, a charge that the governor of New York called incorrect and grossly uninformed. There is a reason that President Trump attacks reporters with personal invective when they read back to him comments from his weeks of downplaying the threat of the virus. The president does not want you to remember that a month ago he was telling you that the U.S. would soon be down to close to zero infected individuals. And while the president may be finally listening to his top health officials, he remains empirically a troubling source of misinformation. And as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, some of the president's advisors are still encouraging him to not listen to his doctor. Today, the White House will formally reissue nationwide guidance after President Trump determined another month of social distancing is necessary. Trump made that decision after being shown models that predicted hundreds of thousands of Americans could die and polling that revealed the nation favored keeping stricter measures in place. We'll go through all of the graphs and all the information that we took to the president for the decision. Today, the public is expected to get its first look at those models that guided Trump's decision, though some in the White House have privately questioned whether they're overblown. This week, Trump said officials should know within days if a drug that treats malaria works for coronavirus. But today, Dr. Tony Fauci said it's still too soon to say. There is no definitive evidence that this worked. The president has made many claims about his coronavirus response that are misleading or not true. Anybody that wants a test can get a test. On a call with governors yesterday, the president claimed that the nation's testing problems have been resolved. I haven't heard about testing in weeks. We've tested more now than any nation in the world. Uh, But I haven't heard about testing being a problem. Thank you. Maryland's Republican governor, Larry Hogan, says the president is wrong and the problem hasn't been fixed. Yeah, that's just not true. It's a aspirational thing and they have taken they've got some new things in the works, but they're not actually out on the streets. And and that's no state has enough testing. Trump once claimed that Google was building a national website that would tell Americans where they can get tested. Google is helping to develop a website. But right now, that website is only available for people who live in four California counties. While he once assured the public that the coronavirus outbreak was under control. It's something that we have uh, tremendous control over. His health experts now say that even if social distancing measures are executed perfectly, models predict that between 100,000 and 200,000 people could die. You know, you're talking about hundreds of thousands and maybe more than that numbers of people. Now, Jake, I noted that there had been some skepticism in the White House about those models. That's because a lot of them are based on assumptions because there are still so many unknowns about the coronavirus going forward. So, But that's really uh, basically what they have to go off of at this point inside the West Wing. All right, Kaylin Collins, thank you so much. Appreciate it. The U.S. economy is taking hit after hit. Goldman Sachs expects unemployment to hit 15 percent by the middle of the year. It also anticipates the U.S. economy will shrink by a third. Let's bring in CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley. Uh, Julia, these are, are staggering figures and add today consumer confidence fell to a nearly three year low. Are we going to see a wave of bad economic news basically every single day until this crisis is over? 
Unfortunately, yes, at least in the short term. And there's something very important to remember about the data that we get this week. Most of this, including the confidence data today, was collected before we saw the real suppression and the economic shutdown across the United States economy. So the only real data point that we can point to this week is those continuing claims, the unemployment benefits on Thursday. Moody's is suggesting we could see another four and a half million people claiming for unemployment benefits. If you add those to what we saw last week, Jake, we're already more than halfway towards Goldman Sachs's estimate there for peak unemployment and we've done it in two to three weeks. It's frightening. And Julia, today, JCPenney, Loft, mm. and Taylor joined companies such as Macy's and The Gap and Kohl's, all furloughing thousands, thousands of retail employees. Is this a sign, at least a, a, a partially encouraging sign, that these are furloughs and, and not layoffs? It's such an important point. Across the retail sector now, we've seen over 500,000 workers furloughed and not fired. And if they're furloughed, the critical point here is, is that they remain getting healthcare benefits, critical at this point in time. Now, these big companies will probably have to get loans so that they can pay their workers in the short term. But the hope is that when we get the other side of this, these workers are in place and that should make the recovery quicker. It's just the part of getting to the other side of this, Jake, as you were just hearing there, which is the big unknown. And, and Julia, I'd never even heard of Zoom uh, before <laughs> two or three weeks ago, but now it's it's huge. Uh, it's a video conferencing service. Um, and Zoom is now responding to the New York uh, State Attorney General who flagged network flaws that might allow intruders to, to hijack a user's webcam. The New York Times reporting that hackers... Uh, interrupted a webinar on anti-Semitism with white supremacist messages. The FBI said it received complaints of conferences disrupted with with pornographic images, threatening language. What, What does Zoom have to say about this? They say they take privacy very seriously, that they're willing to give the attorney general information in request of their questions. The bottom line is these guys have zoomed to attention with everybody working from home, students from home as well. They're struggling to cope with the amount of scrutiny. They've got a class action lawsuit, too. The bottom line here, Jake, this app is free. Nothing in life is free. So if you're downloading it, you're using it, great. But just try and get comfortable with the terms and conditions that have been updated. And remember that you're paying something in terms of access to your data. You're always paying something. Julia Jennery, thank you so much. Coming up next, I'm going to talk to the governor of the Garden State, New Jersey, the state that's been hit hardest hit uh, behind New York when it comes to the number of people infected, the shockingly no, low number of ventilators New Jersey has. That's next. There's been tremendous focus on New York State, the current U.S. epicenter of the virus outbreak. But New Jersey, just across the river, now has the second highest number of confirmed cases in the nation, close to 19,000, along with at least 267 Deaths. Joining me now is the Democratic governor of the Garden State, Phil Murphy. Uh, governor Murphy, thanks so much uh, for joining us. You said New Jersey needs 2,300 ventilators, and so far you've received 300. Is the federal government helping you to acquire the 2,000 more that you anticipate you will need? Yeah, Jake, good to be with you. Um, we're turning over every stone. Uh, our ask was for 2,300. As you mentioned, we got 300 overnight. We're grateful for that. We need them urgently. 
and we need the federal government, and they know this, the administration knows this, we need a good slug of the balance. And separately, we are doing everything we can to find other avenues, but uh, we need a lot more out of the federal stockpile as well. We've heard stories uh, from governors and mayors about how frustrating it is for you all to compete against each other for ventilators and PPE and masks as if one, I think some one person described it as the, the Wild West or the Lord of the Flies. I want you to take a listen to Rhode Island's governor from earlier today. I want to be very clear about this. Right now in this country, we do not have enough ventilators to meet our needs. We do not have enough masks and respirators and goggles to meet our needs. Do you agree? I think it's pretty clear. I mean, at least in New Jersey, we are light on beds. All of the federal government, to their credit, are helping us build some field hospitals. We're light on personal protective equipment. There's no doubt about it. We're getting a lot of donations, and we're, we're turning over every stone. And we're light on ventilators. Uh, and so the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, we are, we are going into this sort of with one, one arm tied behind our back and making the best of a situation. CNN has learned um, that the president insisted on a call with governors yesterday. You were on the call uh, that there are no problems with testing in this country, as far as he knew. Um, what was your response when he said that? Because obviously it's not true. Listen, we were faced right from the get go. We started meeting on this in January. And in a perfect world, you'd do what South Korea has done and you'd test. You'd have universal testing. We knew right from the outset we were going to get limited supplies, particularly on the, the specimen intake side and the PPE to protect our healthcare workers. So right from the get-go, we've only tested symptomatic people. We've now got 25 different locations, I think, in the state. So we can't let, we can't let what otherwise be a perfect world stop us from at least getting to the folks who have symptoms. Uh, and that's what we've been aggressively doing. We're, we're playing the hand we're dealt right now, Jake. I don't know. How better way to say it? President Trump obviously has uh, publicly attacked some of your colleagues, uh, fellow governors, um, Governor Inslee of Washington, Whitmer of Michigan. Uh, in his view, they're not appreciative enough of the federal effort. Do you ever find yourself holding your tongue when it comes to criticizing the federal response for fear that the president will take some action that will end up hurting the citizens of New Jersey? Listen, I don't think I pull any punches, and I'm sure the president doesn't pull any punches. As I've said to many folks, I don't wake up in the morning getting to choose between President X or President Y. President Trump is the president. And so we have to have a good working relationship uh, with the administration, whether we like how we got here or not. And it's quite clear we're undermanned and underprepared. Uh, my, my job is to play the hand, as I say, that we've been dealt and make the best of this. And we're not going to we're going to rely on our federal partners, but we're also going to turn over every single stone and explore every avenue we can in the state, around the country and around the world. And you're planning to open field hospitals next week. The states brought back over 3,600 retired health care workers. Are you confident that you're going to have enough to fight this virus as, as we head into the peak over the next few weeks? We're going to see. I mean, Jake, uh, we are doing everything we can. We basically have two strategies very simple, flatten the damn curve, stay at home, don't go out unless you have to, and God willing, uh, bring the, that curve and flatten it as, as low as we can. And on the other hand, with beds 
PPE, ventilators, healthcare workers, as you note, it's now over 4,000 folks who have signed up and said they want to help. We have to do both sides of this. We can't just manage the inputs. We've got to manage both the inputs and the potential outputs. All right. God bless uh, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy. Thanks for your time. Let us know how we can help bring attention to anything you need that you're not getting to help the citizens of New Jersey. Will do, Jake. Thank you. Coming up next, the drastic steps one country is taking, turning a stadium into a jail for those violating lockdown and using sanitizer meant for buses on people. Our reporters around the globe, we're going to them next. In our world lead, European hospitals are warning they could run out of essential drugs for ICU patients in just days in the hardest hit areas. And in India, a cricket stadium has been turned into a makeshift jail for people who violate India's lockdown restrictions. We have CNN reporters around the world. Uh, let me start right now with CNN's Nick Peyton Walsh, who joins us now from London. Nick, the, the UK has just confirmed the, the youngest victim to coronavirus, a 13-year-old boy. Absolutely. Not much else known at this stage, Jake. This would be the youngest death uh, in the United Kingdom, one of the youngest, sadly, in Europe. And of course, people will be now asking whether or not this tragically young victim. Remember, cases around the world so rarely see people below uh, the age of 2012 even, even admitted to ICU, whether there were any underlying health conditions here at all. But this just accentuates the gravity of what's unfolding here in the United Kingdom. The death toll went up to 1789 today, up 27% in one day, one of the largest leaps we've seen. And many are concerned that certainly here in London, the capital, the peak may be coming as quickly as this weekend. Is Britain ready? It's unclear. A large hospital being built on the banks of the River Thames in just a week to prepare for the overflow of cases here. But the government's struggling to answer the basic question today about why so few tests have been done here in the UK, Jake. All right, Nick Payton Walsh, stay safe, my friend. CNN Sam Kiley joins me now live from Abu Dhabi. Sam, migrant workers in India, I'm told, are being sprayed with a potent sanitizer that's meant to sanitize buses. Yeah, this was a case in which 5,000 workers, Jake, were sprayed with a uh, disinfectant containing bleach that, as you say, was used to really to clean buses by what was described as overzealous health officials. And that is because there are hundreds of thousands of unemployed migrants, people who've lost their jobs because of the three-week uh, shutdown, the 21-day shutdown announced by Prime Minister Modi across that nation. It's now halfway through. They're trying to return to their homes. They're destitute. Uh, and the Indians are having to create effectively refugee camps to, to deal with some of them. They've got 600,000 people in internal camps, feeding program for 2.3 million people, uh, and a recovery package, Jake, of $25 billion when it finally uh, comes through. But at the moment, the concern is the spread of the virus by these migrant laborers returning home. All right, Sam Kiley, thank you so much. Stay safe. Finally, some relief from the stress and sadness of this crisis. He could be the most popular Italian-American since old Blue Eyes himself. Dr. Anthony Fauci is the man America is relying on. His steady guidance has turned him into a social media sensation. A donut shop in Rochester, New York, put the dock on a special donut with red, white, and blue sprinkles. You can now buy Anthony Fauci socks on Etsy. 
along with all kinds of other Fauci swag. A clam bar on Long Island is now also selling Fauci linguine, claiming the sauce itself was invented in the doctor's native Sicily, available pickup only, of course. And speaking of Italian-Americans that we love, before we go, we want to send some well wishes to a member of our CNN family, Chris Cuomo. Uh, Cuomo uh, regrettably tested positive for the coronavirus. We are all uh, thinking and praying and sending our love to you and, and your beautiful family, Chris. Our best wishes with you. Stay in touch, of course. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.